Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and thanks for listening to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I'm your host, David Gottlieb. Is there a way, a means of study, an avenue of exploration that could lead one to the very heart of what it means to be religious? For David L. Weddle, Professor Emeritus of Religion at Colorado College, the heart of religious practice and belief can be found in the practice of sacrifice. In his far-reaching and provocative new book, Sacrifice in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, published by New York University Press, Professor Weddle conducts a comparative study of the practice and social significance of sacrifice in what are often misnamed the Abrahamic traditions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. As Professor Weddle notes, religion is costly, and among its most exorbitant costs is sacrifice, which Professor Weddle defines as the giving up of natural and human goods for human benefits. He examines in detail and with a keen ethical eye the costs of religious belief and how these costs both confine and sustain the three faiths that he examines. Even as sacrifice binds communities together, says the author, it justifies interpersonal violence and wholesale slaughter, and it can be a kind of purifying sacrifice of its own. Professor Weddle distinguishes between the moral and religious values and virtues of sacrifice, and he calls for a comprehensive reimagining of the sacrificial ideal. David L. Weddle joins me to talk about this fascinating new book. Professor Weddle, thank you for being here. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you, David. So what led you to want to write this book? This is actually the second book in a uh, what may be only a two-volume series, but the first book was on miracles, which I thought was an important sign that religions have of their uh, belief in transcendence. And that led me to the question of if a religion has miraculous signs, does it also require its practitioners to signify their belief in the transcendent by some particular act. And I, I thought sacrifice as a nearly universal religious activity uh, was, was just that act, the gesture of indicating one's own freedom from the natural and cultural worlds and indicating a belief in the transcendent. Mm-hmm. And so you're focus in this book is on, as I mentioned previously, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, three faiths which, as we know, have common, you know, mythical and historical roots, but they approach sacrifice in very different ways. But you point out uh, one commonality, and that is that in these traditions, uh, one surrenders the gift of sacrifice with no guarantee of any return or any acknowledgement. So that its self-denying character is considered a mark of its transcendent reality. And I want, I wondered if you could just talk about the importance of that really puzzling, uh, fact 
uh, of <laughs> sacrifice that exists across the traditions. Yes, that really is the essence of the thing, I believe, is that sacrifice must be given without any interest in a personal benefit or outcome. And yet, for many people in these religious traditions, sacrifice is for a particular purpose. And that purpose is often, in my view, an abstract, imagined benefit, whether that's forgiveness of sins or the kingdom of God or the uh, perfect social order, whatever it is. Sacrifice means that people must give up their own personal interest in the outcome. That's where I think the mystic critique of sacrifice is an important thing to bring out. Most of the mystics will say that one should love God for God's own sake, not for any particular benefit one is going to get from it. Uh, and yet, I think when sacrifice goes awry in all of these traditions, it is because one is willing either to die for or to kill for some particular abstract benefit, whatever so, it is. So that's interesting because in, in making that observation, you're really making a connection between um, between the act of martyrdom, which is elevated, obviously, in all these traditions, and the act of murder. Well, I think when sacrifice is brought into the description of either giving one's own life or taking the lives of others, then a certain kind of sanctification of the violence is at hand. And, and once an act of violence is regarded as a sacrifice, there is a certain self-perpetuating logic, particularly when this is used in political or military discourse, then the, that the sacrifice should not be in vain. Thus, more sacrifices must be made. Interesting. And what I argue is that that is a cycle that must be broken and that all of these traditions have in their stories of sacrifice certain indications that the tradition itself is not completely comfortable with sacrifice as a religious ideal. How do the... Th can you talk a little bit about how the three separate faiths express and deal with their discomfort? with the practice of sacrifice. Right. For that, I find the story of the binding of Isaac to be really critical in all three traditions. Mm -hmm. And that's why in this book, rather than dealing with the five traditions that I explored in the book on miracles, I decided to limit our consideration to these three, uh, which I call religions of Abraham, mm -hmm. rather than Abrahamic religions for reasons we can we can talk about if you would like. But I find in all three of these traditions certain uh, indicators or signs that the traditions are trying to make the story of Abraham binding Isaac for sacrifice more acceptable, to try to blunt its moral offense to try to lift out of it some uh, religious inspiration. So, for example, in the Jewish tradition, Abraham is seen as, as an example of one who was totally obedient to the will of God. 
and that this was a test of his faith, according to the account in Genesis, which he passed with flying colors. In the Christian tradition, the story is seen as a kind of prototype of the sacrifice of Christ, in which the son is actually killed, but out of his death comes then the salvation of the world. In the Islamic tradition, uh, the emphasis is very much on the submission of both father and son, so that it's not so much then a story of Abraham victimizing his son, but rather both the father and son showing themselves uh, men of faith and uh, submitted to God's will. And of course, in Islam, so, it is Ishmael and not Isaac. Generally speaking, scholars agree who uh, that is sacrifice. Is that right? Well, generally speaking, most Muslims now believe that it is Ishmael. In the first two centuries of Islamic history, this was very much a debated topic uh-huh. because the Quran, the Quran does not name the son. It's just the son. So there's a kind of ongoing argument among particularly Jewish and Islamic scholars here where Jewish scholars say that the son is named as Isaac and Muslim scholars reply, but it says his only son and the only time Abraham had only one son was when Ishmael was alive. But then the Jewish scholars reply, yes, but Isaac was the only son left after Ishmael was exiled. <laughs> and so and so the debate goes on. Yeah. And, and it really only became an important debate uh, when the question of exactly who are the true children of Abraham began to become a more pressing question. So, and that would be after the first couple of centuries right. of the Islamic era. Right. How does Christianity's approach to the story and to the practice of sacrifice, or does Christianity make a leap away from the Jewish and Islamic traditions? And how do you see that as being fundamentally different, if you do? Well, the Christian view, let me start over again and, and say that sacrifice is such a central category in the Christian tradition that it's often overlooked that it was a highly contested one at the beginning of the tradition. So in the first two to three centuries, there were uh, Christian communities who rejected the notion that Jesus' death was a sacrifice. For them, the important thing about Jesus was not how he died, but how he lived and what he taught. Mm -hmm. And these folks are generally identified under the umbrella term Gnostic. And I speak a little bit about their work in the book. but. By all means, uh, sacrifice as the way of understanding the death of Jesus became the prominent orthodox view. And that is very different, of course, from both the Jewish and Muslim understandings, that the death of Jesus does not bring about the salvation of the world. Uh, In fact, in Islamic tradition, Jesus was not crucified, but was taken directly into heaven. Hmm. Now. There right. are, I'm, I'm sorry, there, yeah, there are some scholars who, uh, uh, I'm thinking of Jonathan Z. Smith in particular, who, who talk about sacrifices um, 
you know, practical implications for society. I believe he says at one point, speaking more broadly of ritual, that it's no big deal. That's a direct quote, sort of implying that the search for transcendent meanings or essences of ritual and of sacrifice in particular is a waste of time. But Smith also talks about the way it either comes from or develops a kind of economic utility around which society coheres. What is your, which Scott, how do you respond to him, first of all? And second of all, which other <laughs> scholars were most influential on, uh, on your view of sacrifice? Yes, that's a, that's a very good question. And of course, Jonathan Z. Smith is, is the premier practitioner, I think, of careful comparative religion today. Mm-hmm. And his, his work on sacrifice is remarkable in several different ways. One of them, the point you just made about the economic implications, he is the one to point out and to stress that the animals that are sacrificed in these traditions are always domesticated. Yes. And, and his point there is that the animal must have some value. So people don't sacrifice wild animals. They're not really something you are giving up. So it has to be something that you are invested in uh, that has value in your economic system and therefore costs you something. Right. That's, that's one important point. And the second one is that these animals are then prepared and presented in a highly constructed manner so that he argues that sacrifice is the offering of an artificial animal, that is one that has been uh, constructed, made, ritually presented. Smith also makes the point that that rituals are primarily a way of setting forth what he calls the way things ought to be, and that, in fact, ritual activity is never just a kind of replication of some phenomenon in the real world but is always an idealized presentation of it. And uh, for that, he, he uses as his example a people who uh, are, are sustained by hunting bears, and they ritualize the bear hunt before they actually go out and perform it. And the ritual involves addressing the bear in a courteous way, uh, carrying out uh, a very straightforward uh, hunting procedure. But of course, Smith says no one is going to call out to a bear before they approach it and kill it. It's not a very good idea. That's not the way people hunt. But but ideally, we would show respect toward other creatures. and, and, and And so ritual is more a way of putting before ourselves and reenacting what we would hope would be the case. And and I find that to be a very useful insight uh, applied to a temple ritual in the Jewish tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have these very detailed prescriptions about how to offer sacrifices in the temple, in the Mishnah, all of which come two centuries, well, a century and a half after the temple is gone. Right. And yet the interest in figuring out how ideally to offer those sacrifices uh, 
still occupies the rabbis to a very large extent. So that here is an example in which ritual uh, sets forth a certain imagined ideal. And that's what I think is at the heart of sacrifice. Uh-huh. Sacrifice is always for the realization of some abstract and imagined ideal. And you actually make a very strong statement about that because you compare uh, at one and and I I'm, I admire the strong you know and forthright ethical uh, observations that you make. One of which is that sacrifice. Sacrificial ontology really can lead to a kind of extremism, and you even compare Abraham to the murderers of Emmett Till, uh, the young African American man who was who was murdered uh, by white Southern extremists in the 1950s, and you say that in both cases this is the death of a child for the sake of an abstraction. Yes, and and I and I believe that that tendency appears in all three of these traditions. And that is one of the th- one of the charges I also make against Islamic jihadists. Uh huh. And what yeah. what do you in the book tell me? Tell us uh, how you address what we should do about this? Because obviously, at this point, sacrificial ontology and epistemology are are woven so deeply into all these traditions. And you talk about ways in which these traditions might sort of absorb and overcome the extremist tendencies that can be born of sacrificial practice. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes, because I think this is really uh, a crucial cultural work that we need to do. Sacrifice has so uh, glorified and sanctioned violence that it has led to, uh, particularly in the modern period, the number of religious wars that have been fought are horrifying. And I think that it is time for us, in the name of our common humanity, the concrete natural good of ourselves and our children, to say that we will no longer sacrifice one another for ourselves, for our imagined ideals. I think that as a human virtue, sacrifice is a necessary uh, foundation of human society. This is a point Emile Durkheim made long ago. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is our willingness to limit our own desires and urges that allows us to live at peace with others and to engage in cooperative projects for the common good. But once we begin to try to realize these imagined ideals for humanity and somehow to impose them through conversion or through military activity or through economic pressure or whatever means of coercion we use. And we are willing to sacrifice our own resources, lives, even young people in this endeavor. Then I think we are on a move toward catastrophe. And unfortunately, I believe that Sarah's response in the rabbinic tradition to the binding of Isaac, which was to scream and die, mm-hmm. is, is an important sign to us of the tragedy inherent in, in, uh, in sacrificing for 
an imagined good that is not shared by all and therefore necessarily leads us into conflict. It's interesting because I hear in your in your views um, some echoes of the views of René Girard and his view that uh, sacrifice is an ex- a mimetic expression of violence, in essence that it sort of siphons off a fundamentally murderous impulse in human beings and in human society. I wonder what you think about that and whether you think, well, if we do away with or transform sacrifice, are we dealing with whatever fundamental impulse there is in humanity? Which, of course, the earliest book of the Bible talks about when uh, when Cain murders Abel, for example. Are we are we dealing with uh, can we through the transformation of sacrifice deal with the fundamentally violent impulses that exist? In humanity and and really especially in male humanity. First of all, I would say there's nothing necessary about these responses. Uh-huh. We don't necessarily have to build our social order by picking out someone and making them a scapegoat in Gerard's sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I talk about Gerard in my chapter on theories of sacrifice. The problem is that Gerard has no positive uh, answer for this. He just sees us locked in these temporary moments when we get some kind of resolution around the dead body of a common victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're able to, to carry on because there's no one who, who is willing to speak for that victim and thus perpetuate the cycle of retribution. Right. But as Gerard points out, this is only temporary. It doesn't last. Now, he has the sense that there's something unique about the Christian story yes. of Jesus' death yes. that somehow breaks this cycle. Uh, and as I say in the book, I, I, I don't see why this has to be limited to Christianity. Any narrative of a victim which, which emphasizes the innocence of the victim ought to have the same effect as the New Testament story. But, of course, none of these stories represent a permanent fix for this problem. I suggest that already in the Bible, especially in the story of Cain and Abel, we see certain ways to move forward. According to the Bible, when Cain kills Abel and God curses him, he is forced to wander as a fugitive in the earth, but he is given that mark of protection. But in fact, that's not what happens to Cain in, in Genesis. Instead, Cain marries, he has a child, and he creates a city. Mm-hmm. And then he names the child and the city the same. And what I find there is what uh, Ilana Pardis calls a counter-tradition in the Bible. Right? The Bible seems to be telling us that there is this murder that takes place, and as a result, the murderer is punished and exiled and made to wander. But then there's this counter-story. Well, he doesn't wander after all. He actually settles. He becomes an urban dweller. He creates a city that is his response to his own murderous intent was to channel it into this creative project 
both of procreation and of cultural creation. Hmm. Now, here's a way of taking the, the energy of the impulse that, that drove that first murder and channeling it into human benefit and creative energy. But that, it's a, I think, it, it's interesting. can be read as a very hopeful story. Absolutely, and it's a really interesting reading. In a way, though, it calls to mind your observation that that sacrifice uh, and religious ideals more broadly lead to the construction of artificial selves. I mean, in a way, what Kane's story might be telling us is that we have to create an artificial self in order to uh, diminish or sublimate or entirely remove the murderous impulse. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the creation of artificial selves and how religious ideals lead to that and and what we do about the artificial self that is sort of put over the more genuine <laughs> self, because I find that a very interesting part of your book. Yes, and I think that there at least I'm hoping not to make a simple binary between nature and culture here. Right. Because, because in our artificiality, we remain natural human beings. But I think that we, we do not make progress. We have not made progress uh, unless we are willing to discipline and uh, channel certain primal energies that are a part of our animal inheritance. And so the whole, the whole project of civilization or enculturation involves, to some extent, our remaking what we are given by nature. And, of course, we engage in long processes of education uh, and social training in order to do that. So I think that being artificial is not, at least in my vocabulary, uh, a necessarily bad thing. Right, right. I, I believe we, that there are certain respects in which we must be artificial. We must uh, make ourselves, refashion ourselves in certain ways. And, uh, and, and we are, to a certain extent, homo interpretus. You know, we have to, part of the, part of the, Artifice is of, of having to interpret our experience and build cultures around shared interpretations. That's right. And that is a process that, that goes on uh, not only once in the formation of a community, but after the community has been formed, then that interpretive process continues. And I think that is something that uh, particularly the history of the Jewish tradition makes very clear. Mm -hmm. uh, there is, in the beginning, this strong emphasis on ritual sacrifice, uh, which culminates in the building of the temple and the continuation of this, of this ritual for centuries. But then, when the second temple is destroyed, the only site and location which would make those sacrifices legitimate is gone. Now what to do? And that calls for a new interpretation. Right. And uh, I think that in the Jewish tradition, we see an absolutely brilliant example of this by uh, turning inward 
and making the family table a site of ritual, making the human heart an altar on which one offers sacrifices to God of prayer and good works. And this is a this is a brilliant move. I mean, it makes it possible now for the people of Israel to continue with their faith and their tradition uh, without a specific spot of ground where they can perform these rather at that point atavistic rituals of right. animal sacrifice. Right. That spot is internalized and can be found where anywhere essentially. Exactly. And and so again, Jonathan Z. Smith comes to comes to mind here in his critique of Mercia Eliada, who argues that every religion has to have a center, a sacred center. Uh, El, uh, Smith points out that that's true of those religions that are centered around palaces and temples. But for itinerant people or people in exile, ritual forms a very different function namely to remember their tradition as they travel. Right. And and in that respect, Smith suggests that all that is left of Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple and the exile is a certain memory. And I strongly suggest toward the end of my chapter on the Jewish tradition that if Jews and Christians and Muslims would together accept a movement beyond the actual sacrifice and the exact ground where it takes place and must take place, and concentrate instead on the reformation of the heart and the will, that we would have a far more peaceful world than we do now. Fascinating a fascinating conception and one that I think is, is shared in certain elements of all those traditions, but also that is contested within each of those traditions. And you give some interesting examples of that. You talk, for example, in your, in your chapter on Christianity about, uh, about the contentious debates that went on over whether Jesus's death was an atoning sacrifice or an act to inspire love for others. Um, can right. you talk a little about that and whose work is most compelling to you on that particular point? That um, viewpoint that, that the death of Jesus changed nothing in God, but was designed to change human beings' views toward God and to increase their love for one another and forgiveness. Mm. With that, that basic understanding of the death of Jesus is present uh, really throughout the Christian tradition, but finds particular expression in uh, Peter Abelard, who is a medieval philosopher uh, who set out what he, uh, what eventually became called the exemplary theory of the atonement, Mm -hmm. as opposed to the satisfaction theory that God's justice must somehow be satisfied. Uh, Abelard's point is that if by viewing the way in which Jesus is presented in the Gospels as having accepted his death, forgiving his enemies, if one is moved by that story to become more loving and forgiving and compassionate oneself, 
then the reformation of the heart that makes one righteous has already taken place. There is therefore nothing more for God to have to derive from this death. That it is primarily a story designed to inspire a subjective transformation, not to create an objective change in the attitude of God toward human beings. And while Abelard was not successful in his own day in putting this forward, it, it was taken up by thinkers in the Christian tradition. And I uh, cite Horace Bushnell, and I'm particularly interested in Bushnell, who was a New England congregational minister, because his ideas filtered through Boston University to Martin Luther King. Right. And it is in King's work, particularly the set of sermons called Strength to Love, that we see this a view of the death of Jesus set forth. In your section on sacrifice in the Islamic tradition, one of the interesting things you do is discuss two very different strains of the view of sacrifice. One is a sort of dissolution into oceanic being, which is the sort of mystical expression in the Sufi tradition, but it also, this dissolution into oceanic being sometimes gets expressed as martyrdom, and you tell the story of the 9th and 10th century Sufi mystic Hussein ibn Mansur. And his story, at least to me, suggests that the mystical and political often stand in sharp opposition to one another, and not just in the Islamic tradition. And uh, it seems to me that the, that the ideas that you propound about how to circumvent or overcome sacrifice at their core are kind of mystical ideas. I wonder if we can conclude the interview by having you react to that observation, are the mystical and political utterly and completely opposed to one another? Or does the ultimate solution of how to overcome sacrifice exist really within a seed of mystical observation and practice? Hmm, that's a very good question. Um First of all, I would say that the mystic and the political are never entirely divorced from one another. Mm -hmm. That the beginnings of Islamic Sufism in the orders of North Africa primarily were uh, often uh, centers of resistance to the old monarchies in that area, Morocco, Algeria, etc. And so they were viewed as somewhat subversive. Any time one claims, whether this is in the Jewish or Christian or Muslim traditions, whenever one claims to have an independent source of divine authority through mystical experience, that person becomes already suspect and a, and a potential threat to the established right. authorities. Right. And so all of these traditions have ways of regulating these mystical claims, sometimes quite ruthlessly. But sometimes simply by, by either isolating them or by co-opting them. Catholic tradition, for example, has been very successful in, in, in co-opting the authority of its primary mystics. Right. Uh, in the, in the Islamic tradition, though, I, I lift out the notion that the Sufi understanding of annihilation 
in the complete absorption into the divine reality, uh, which is seen as the highest mystical experience, that that sort of self-erasure is the ultimate sacrifice. And that I think this is the weakness of the mystic approach, which is that it removes the individual actor and his or her responsibility for the world around. And so there is a tendency, this is, if the, if the strength of mysticism is to establish individual centers of authority over against established rulers, the weakness is a kind of diminishing of the importance of uh, political reality. Uh-huh. And so there can be, ironically, as one is completely filled with the love of God, a certain decrease in awareness of and love for other human beings. My final prescription in this book is to say that the solution to extreme examples of sacrifice is a renewed attention to the concrete other human beings before us to whom we owe primary moral responsibility. Uh, they, they are the ones who, if anything or anyone does, deserve our sacrifice. Wonderfully said, and an excellent note on which uh, to end our conversation, which I've greatly enjoyed. I did as well. Thank you, David. My guest today has been David L. Weddle, Professor Emeritus of Religious Studies at Colorado College and the author of Sacrifice in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, published in 2017 by NYU Press. Professor Weddle, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you.